Okay, well, the first returning guest would be, uh, well, I introduced you the first time as Mr. Dr. Professor Abbott, so I feel like that is still applicable today. So we'll, uh, we'll roll with that. <laughs> Every time, please, the full title. So I'm honored to be both the first and the first returning. Yeah. It's gonna be hard to outdo this. The main reason I wanted to have you on was your book uh, came out August? July. Let's say August. We'll go, okay. But um, I bought it pretty pretty quick and um, really enjoyed the book. The, the thing that I really liked about it, which is one of the sort of criticisms that I have of law, is that your book includes different disciplines to aid in your understanding of the law, which I feel like is very important because it provides a context that people can sort of figure out much easier, if, particularly if you're not a law student. Um, so the adding philosophy, psychology, current events, history, and then of course the law, I, I really like that. I like having that wide variety of topics to, to pick from. And um, yes. <laughs> and yeah, so I just, I just thought it would be great to have you back and kind of run through it. I know we talked a little bit about probably some of the stuff um, in the first podcast that's in the book, but we'll kind of run through the book and we'll leave it, leave room for some tangents and the usual nonsense. But most of it, I think, will just be kind of running through the book and talking a little bit about the parts that uh, caught my eye a little bit. Excellent. Well, hopefully 90% of the audience didn't just tune out when they heard go through <laughs> book. But, um, you know, the only thing I like more than talking about myself is talking about my book. So I'm, I'm ready. Let's Perfect. do this. All right. So to start it off, um, I mean, I guess we just start off literally. Oh, actually, so this is what we'll do. Uh, right. We'll talk about the writing of the book first. I remember that. We'll start from uh, the writing of the book. Yes. Yeah. And then we'll get into the uh, then we'll get into the actual content. So for people who obviously are listening and haven't read it yet, the book is only about 140 pages. So it's not a, an overly big book, but it is mighty dense. It's it's excellent in that regard. And the first thing that caught my eye was how the hell did you write this thing? Because it must have been very difficult to get all these other disciplines, information from these other disciplines into the book in a way that's coherent. Um, but you did an excellent job. So I, I'd love to start from there. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to tell where to start. Writing the book was a journey, you know, and, and it was a journey often involving several steps backwards. <laughs> so in the United States, when you are a law professor, you're told your primary job is to publish stuff. I mean, that is pretty much your job of being any sort of research academic. But different cultures have different sort of publishing norms. So, you know, if you were to publish a bunch of law stuff and look for a job as a medical academic or a business academic, it wouldn't fly too well. And they, they wouldn't be used to what they were seeing. And so U.S. law professors are generally told, you know, a, a productive legal academic publishes one law review article a year. You know, you don't have to do that all the time. And some superstars publish two or three a year. 
And they're a really particular format of writing, which is like a 15 to 25,000 word article that appears in a law review, which are almost all in the US student run, student edited, not peer reviewed. Um, other disciplines find this really strange, but that's what it's like for legal academics. So I was doing that and then I got the job at Surrey and they're like, well, in England, we like it when people write books. People do write books in the US sometimes, but plenty of you know leading people at Yale, Stanford and Harvard have never written a book um, just because there's not the same sort of norm around doing it. So I'm like, all right, gotta write a book. I'm like, where do I start? Well. <laughs> I guess there's Cambridge and Oxford. So I wrote Oxford a letter and said, would you like to see a book outline? And I'm still waiting to hear back from them. And <laughs> I think I had Cambridge I'd published a bunch with. So he's like, sold, do it. <clears throat> so I put that together and, and then he's like, oh, but like, can you do it all yesterday? Cause like AI in law is really hot. We want something out now. I, in fact, I think I missed my really hot AI in law window because everyone was talking about AI in law last year and now everyone's talking about COVID. And, right. uh, and so when I, skipping ahead, when I went to a press agent to promote the book, they're like, we have to make your book about COVID. I'm like, okay, well, like all the things that AI can do with respect to COVID, <laughs> <clears throat> which it can, so fair enough. Um, so let's see, right? So then it was write a book and, and I was planning to write a book kind of generally about AI and law and kind of going through each key theme about AI and law and my own take on it. So like AI and privacy, AI and data governance, AI and, you know, um, administrative agencies, that sort of thing. And then I decided that a smart thing to do also would be to have more children. So two additional children were born during the time of the book, uh, <laughs> Ryan and Theodora. And it turns out that having small children and writing a book are not activities that necessarily <laughs> mesh me. So it was awfully hard for me to write this book from scratch, which was going to require an awful lot of work to not write something um, or to write something useful and original. But then I had another idea. I'd actually been researching AI and law, well now for the past six or seven years, but at the time three or four years. And I'd written on um, AI and intellectual property, AI and tax law, AI and tort law. And it seemed actually, you know, I, in kind of a rush to be productive, I would have these thoughts, I would put them in an article, I would put them out, you know, I would go and talk about it, but I think more about it and I think, you know, geez, if I could go back in time, I'd totally rewrite that thing um, or at least moderately rewrite it. So the idea occurred to me that I could kind of synthesize all of the work that I had done and put it in the new book. And it would also give me a chance to kind of redo some of it, you know, not, not massively, but in ways to kind of make it more useful and make more sense. But to do that, I also had to find a theme in the past writings, unless it was just going to be like a collection of pre-published articles, which no one would want to read or publish. Uh, and the theme was really that even though I hadn't really thought about it like this at the time, as I was looking at how AI was stepping into the shoes of people, doing different activities, and how that kind of messed with laws designed to have people do these things, 
really that was what the whole book was talking about or, or my whole research body, which was people in AI acting interchangeably and the impact that has on the law and the impact the law has on AI development. And so I brought that theme out and then kind of pushed that across the chapters and then worked with Alex Sarge to do a chapter on criminal law. And then, then we had a book, which was still a lot of work. And then also I turned it in and then in what was very bad form, I insisted on rewriting almost the entire book like three times, getting a second copy editor, rewriting it again. Um, not, not so much substantively, but just to make the book better. That's a lot of writing. My goodness. It was a lot of writing. It was a lot of writing. And I'm not used to rewriting things so much. Well, I've never rewritten anything quite as much as the book. And still, I read the book now, and I'm like, hmm, if I could rewrite this one more time. But I'm pretty happy with where the book is, certainly right. substantively. Um, so, you know, it all worked out. And, uh, you know, sadly, I had this whole book tour launch thing scheduled around the world. They were going to do a symposium on the book. They were going to give talks. We were going to do a book launch. COVID has kind of interrupted that. But hopefully now people are at home with less to do, so they might read a book. Yeah. Oh, and you're here now. You're on the podcast. So there you go. Well, there you go. That That is definitely working out. And, um, you know, there are some advantages to, to COVID and doing speaking. Like um, at the end of last year, I spoke at a conference in Brazil and Russia and um, some other exotic places. And it, it takes like at least a few days. And then you're at a conference and you spend several days there. And it's cool because you get to network with people and also sometimes do fun things. But now I just hop on a one or two hour Zoom call. I spoke at a conference in Russia a few days ago. <laughs> it, 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 I didn't have to get a visa. I didn't have to fly in. I didn't have to get cold. I didn't have to wait in traffic. I just got on for an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, it, it particularly, I like what you, you mentioned about uh, rewriting things. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but law students, don't really like to rewrite their own crap either. I don't know. It might come as a surprise. Because um, I certainly don't like doing it. And part of the reason I don't like doing it is because I don't really know how to do it. I think that's the other problem is because, I mean, okay, I think for the amount of writing that we do in university, it, it's not nearly as much as you did for this book, let's say. I mean, that's a significantly larger project. So I, I feel like nobody's ever, I, I, the only person I've ever listened to talking about writing and rewriting is Jordan Peterson on his podcasts. He'll kind of throw in some info every now and then, but there's never really been anybody to kind of give, I mean, I understand it's subjective, but a rough step-by-step -step on, this is sort of the process that you need to go by when it comes to rewriting and, and redrafting your work. And was that something that you had to learn basically just trial and error or did you have a bit of guidance with that? No, I think it's pretty much all stuff I figured out on the fly. You know, when I was an undergraduate myself, you know, people were often dismissive of majors like English and literature and communications. Um, and I ended up doing science myself, although I did a fair number of liberal arts classes. But as a, as a lawyer, writing and writing well is, 
for many lawyers, such a, a very important part of their job, not just as an academic writing law review articles, but writing briefs to a court, writing contracts for a transaction. Uh, the ability to write well is really a very critical one. And, you know, it is something that not that many lawyers are that great at, and it's unfortunate. Um, not necessarily that I'm that great at it, but I, I have a better sense of how to write something the first time around, right? Which is not just that you start writing and you see where something goes, but that you release it down and you do an outline and you, you know, decide what you want to say, you decide what your key points are, and then you do essentially a paragraph by paragraph breakdown and figure out, you know, what is each paragraph saying? How does it contribute to my larger point? And how does this fit into a theme? You know, and, and that is something that I have come around to doing largely. Um, Alex and I did that for our last law review article. Um, you know, rewriting it is, I guess, just, um, you know, things change when you write them and you could kind of do a backwards constructive outline and see what your points are, whether they still work together and still work together that way. But, you know, students, well, speaking of students writing exams, students are always tempted to write more on exams. And students are often tempted when they don't know what they're talking about to just start writing stuff. Like, <laughs> here's a bunch of rules kind of related to the question you're asking, but not actually addressing the question. You know, actually addressing the question can be a pretty succinct exercise. And so I think, you know, one then should go back and try and be ruthless about, you know, are there any needless paragraphs or sentences here that are not directly making the point that I want to make? Are there any needless words in this sentence? I read things out loud. In fact, I'm going to do an audible book with the book. I was going to do this before, but I, I can't get a studio open with my friend who does this. Um, <laughs> he's in LA and, and COVID, but you know, reading it out loud helps because sometimes you read a sentence out loud and you think, well, first, no one would speak this way. And second, I don't know what I just said. Um, so that was a whole bunch of not thought out in advance, random points about writing and rewriting things. If I was rewriting this, right, I'd have that all there and I think we need to shift some things around here and trim a bit. Right. And yeah. the lady so, student would just kind of leave that be and go off to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny because actually, if uh, getting an audiobook um, for this book would be excellent. Um, cause a lot of this stuff, obviously, because you were one of my professors, um, not a lot of the information, but definitely some of the information I read and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I remember him saying that in a lecture. So it does have that. It's palatable enough that you don't have to be a law student. You don't have to be any university student to understand it, but there's definitely a difference, um, with learning from reading it yourself and somebody funneling that into your head through through an audiobook. Right. Well, I mean, so two points on that. One was I did, I tried to strike a weird middle ground with this book between being a book that legal academics would appreciate, which was, I suppose, my core audience, but also being a book that just anyone might want to read or find interesting. I you know, see in airport bookstores when I'm walking through books on kind of AI sometime and I read them and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And I thought, well, no reason this couldn't be one of those books. So, so I mean, that was what it was an attempt to both be of interest to sort of people who aren't lawyers or legal academics 
Well, what was the other thing you were saying? I got distracted by the audience. Oh, um, right, the audiobook. I, on the other hand, cannot listen to an audiobook because it's oh, too funny. slow. I, I've never really listened to one seriously. I, I would much rather have the book and read it myself. Yeah, funny. But, and that's, sorry, and you're a, is that because you're a fast reader? I am a pretty fast reader. Although, yeah. depending on what I'm reading, you know, if it's, you know, sometimes one should slow down to read, but generally I'm a pretty fast reader. Yeah. See, it's funny because I'm an exceptionally fast reader. I've actually been learning to read faster the last few months, um, but I at least retain it. So I guess it's working out well. But uh, yeah, there's something about the, the audiobook but I'm a real podcast fan, so that might be why it's it's kind of a lateral move between an audiobook and a podcast. So I'm just maybe I'm a bit biased. I, I don't know why, but <laughs> it's probably good that you like podcasts. Yeah, exactly, right. But and to just piggyback on what you said, that was the first thing that I noticed after probably about a couple chapters in was that anybody could read this book. It doesn't matter that. And then I actually kind of joked because if you're a law student, you'll pick up on certain words or phrases that are very law, you know? So you see reasonableness or recklessness, you know, negligence, you're like, oh yeah, there you go, you see them. But anybody can pick up the book. Yeah, anyone can pick it up and, and really enjoy it. So I'm really glad you wrote it because I had a great time reading it and obviously happy to have you on here. So um, well, thanks, appreciate it. Now I have a question and I'll ask you the question and you can either choose to answer it now or at the end of going through the stuff, wherever you think would be kind of best. So we'll set it up and it's like a Tarantino story, right? We don't know, we start at the end, maybe start in the middle, right? So, um, but the question for you is after going through the book, um, there's a, a few claims in there or some things that you assert that are they struck me as being, we'll call them highly original, because I've never, I'm like, this is some pretty radical new style of thinking. I've, I've never heard anyone kind of come up with some of those ideas, and, and we'll go through what those ideas are. But just generally speaking, um, as far as how well received were your ideas in the field? Because sometimes, you know, it's, it's nice and it's, it's great to have that original thought, but other times, you know, ac academia is very political and that can create a bit of waves too. So there's kind of a bit of a dichotomy there. So I'll throw that to you and you tell me what you think. <laughs> right. Well, no, the book is definitely controversial. Um, so, so the, the thesis of the book is again, mainly that People and machines are behaving in interchangeable ways, and we would all be better off if the law did less to distinguish between people and machines, or behavior between people and machines. And, and I would say that kind of flies in the face of an emerging sense that AI, which was once sort of uncritically welcomed, has now been shown to have the possibility of having a lot of problems, and that that really we shouldn't be so quick to adopt it and really that having people kind of in charge or not automating things is the solution to problems. So, um, you know, academically too, that is a much stronger, I would say, belief that it is an industry. Um, you know, I think industry recognizes more the commercial value of these technologies and there is more reticence in an academic community. So, um, 
Is it catching on yet? Um, you know, I speak about it to a lot of groups of AI people. Um, the idea is making its way out there. Has it achieved <laughs> universal success yet? No, uh, but we are early on. I mean, of course, one area where this is really practically being tested is with this AI test case that I told you about last time, right? So if anyone didn't hear about that, you know, my, my first entrance into this area was doing patent work and seeing the companies were in the life sciences saying they had AI that could help do the sorts of things that would get you a patent. And we're also doing the sorts of things that really a person used to do that would make them an inventor on a patent and me wondering, well, I wonder if anyone's ever thought about, you know, a patentable invention coming out of an AI. And yes, people have thought about that for a long time. Uh, but I thought, you know, but, but academics saying, well, of course, you don't need patents for these sorts of things because machines don't care about patents. And I argued, well, yes, certainly machines don't care about patents, but companies care about patents. And companies are the ones doing this R&D and mostly owning patents. And if you can get a machine to do something more effectively than a person, I see no reason why you wouldn't want to do that and why a company that has an AI makes some new um, you know, mechanical part that's inventive why should they only get protection if they hire an employee to do it versus getting a machine to do it? Um, and protecting that sort of thing would encourage companies to develop inventive machines and we'd ultimately get more social R&D um, or more socially beneficial research and development. And I wrote about that in 2014 and speaking of kind of how people have reacted to this, I used to go out in like 2014 and talk about this and people were like, that's kind of interesting. And now I talk about it and people are concerned that it's a problem for their business, right? And not a problem for their business that they're like turning problems over to machines and machines are doing all the work, but you know, they're, they're doing more with machines. They're doing more with interdisciplinary groups of people. They're doing more with other companies and the boundaries between what makes a inventor are getting less clear. And this really kind of got a powerful case study last year from Siemens, which started publicly talking about the fact that they'd had some, um, you know, not sure what the right word is, but engineering designs that were inventive that the patent attorneys at the company wanted to file for patents on. And the human engineers all said, we're not willing to put our names on this. The machine did all of the design work. You know, there's really nothing here that would have qualified us to be an inventor. Right, and so this takes it from kind of academic people saying, oh, we can have machines do this stuff to a Fortune 500 company saying, this is a real problem for us. And, you know, anecdotally, other Fortune 500 companies have talked to me and said, you know, what do you think we should do about this? So there, it's at least a concern that isn't, you know, something that's purely academic. And so we filed two test cases for patents made by an AI without we argue a human exhibiting traditional inventorship criteria. Uh, and we can talk about how that happened if it's of interest, but we announced that in August of 2019. And um, really this has kind of become the sexy new patent case in part because people like talking about cases. You know, the last one was the monkey case, the monkey <laughs> selfies. Yeah. And now we've got the Dabas cases. And this has been really, um, controversial in the patent community. Uh, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, is doing a, 
a conversation on AI and IP. The UK IPO just launched a consultation for views on this. The US PTO just launched a consultation. I'd say a lot of people are saying, you know, first, this isn't really an issue yet because you don't have artificial general intelligence, which is this idea of a machine that could think and do anything a person could do. Um, well, actually, that's kind of largely their position, right? This isn't an issue yet. And even if it was, you know, you'd never want to grant a patent for something like this because patents are about encouraging human ingenuity and, and this could lead to all sorts of bad things. You know, I, I think though, my own view is that's a, a pretty fundamental misunderstanding of the technology. So the US Patent and Trademark Office rejected our application and I just filed a complaint in Eastern District of Virginia in district court challenging this rejection. And my response to that basically is, is two things. You know, one, the idea that a machine can't think really depends on what you mean by think. Mm -hmm. If you mean think like a person, yeah, a machine doesn't think like a person. But if you mean you give it an input and it generates an output without a person doing anything inventive and the output is patentable, well, that it can do. And it's really not clear if you're talking about thinking what the difference between A and B is there. I mean, we don't really know what people are thinking about or are doing when they're thinking. Um, so it's not clear that a machine, well, a machine is doing something functionally the same. And if you wanted to take it out of function and get to process, it's not really clear that there's any sort of meaningful difference between what the two are doing, at least from the perspective of generating inventions. Right, and that's probably the more important reason, I think, why it shouldn't matter, which is, you know, so one is, can a machine think? The answer is, well, it depends what you mean by think. And the second is, and why should we care? Because if the purpose of patent law is to have more inventions, or at least that's kind of the key reason behind it, um, why should we care if a machine is thinking or not? Strangely enough, you know, you mentioned kind of bringing in all sorts of disciplines into this. You know, it's interesting for me, one of the things that I you know, read a few times for this book is Alan Turing's paper on you know, what has become the Turing test, but he called the imitation game. And, and he proposed in this paper to, to address the question that people were asking in the 1940s, can a machine think, right? And some people were arguing that really functionally it does more or less what a person does. And he pointed off right at the bat, off the bat, you know, this is a question no one should care about. You know, first, we don't know how people think. We don't even know that other people think. We just sort of engage in a polite convention that other people think, and we don't question it too much. And we have something in mind when we think about people thinking. Uh, but really, what should matter from a computer science perspective is, can you get a machine to behave in the way that a thinking person would behave? And if you couldn't tell the difference between the two, then functionally, a machine is thinking. And I think that's what we have here. 60 years later with inventions. It's funny when, <clears throat> especially with the law, it's always funny because just because the law says something, people just take that like, okay, but why? Like think about it for more than just what it is. Like why, how did the law develop the way it is and what was the reasoning for it? And it's funny how, in what you're talking about, how well a machine can or can't think and it's like, yeah, but what do people do? So we can't even, we just accept that, okay, it is what it is and, and that's okay. And not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I did a podcast um, that will get released with this series um, about a, with a gentleman who has two autistic boys and quite severely autistic. And he was telling lots of these 
I mean, <laughs> crazy stories about how just the thing, just basically how they think. Like they, they have this incredible, it's just, it's so interesting. Like you know, I don't know how you want to say, like, I guess that's technically abnormal thinking, right? To, to use the psychological terms for it. But I can't do that stuff. So does that make me abnormal? But it's like, why I'm not, I don't have a cognitive disability. So no, but then how do you discount that? So once you start kind of looking at it, it's like, well, what does that mean to think? What does that actually mean? And then that's when you start pulling in philosophy and psychology. So then that's when it all kind of starts coming together. So it's, it's quite interesting. And one of the other things kind of jumping back a little bit on what you said, but one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading the book was, so in regards to patents, what does it matter that a company can't get patent protection for an invention or an AI generated invention that they have control over? And that's, well, the ability for then those secrets to remain secrets in the form of trade secrets, because they don't want that information getting out of there because there's no protection. And then somebody else can come along and basically just hijack that technology and use it for their own gain. So especially when there's money involved, when you have commercial companies doing their thing, that can be problematic. And that's a very important distinction. And that's kind of what you were pointing out there. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few reasons. So like, imagine you were a pharmaceutical company like Pfizer, and you wanted to develop, you know, to bring it to COVID, a vaccine to COVID, you want to develop a treatment to COVID. If you could have, you know, present a well-known target like COVID, which has been, you know, characterized to an AI, and the AI could search through a library of, you know, 50 million potential treatments and model how each one would interact with COVID and spit out, you know, this compound has superior predicted properties for treating COVID, right? That's something that would make a person an inventor on a, on a use patent for that compound to treat COVID. And that is something that machines can do at least in part with at least some questionable inventive skill by a person. You know, so maybe the machine can say, well, here's 10 compounds and a person has to pick between them, you know, but at least if the machine picks one compound and says, here you go, it, it's not clear there's that much to reward on the person's behalf. But, you know, in life sciences, companies say that they really need to have these patents to make new drugs because the cost of getting the drug is very high for approval and clinical testing. And after that, at least if it's not a biological, the cost of making it's generally pretty low. So what you would make those companies do then is not be able to use AI like this if they really needed a patent. Now, a company like that really couldn't rely on trade secret protection because they'd have to disclose the compound. But if you go into some other industries where there isn't such a norm around, um, you know, or where they have the ability to either patent or keep something secret, the default position is that when something, someone has a commercially valuable invention, we want them to publish it in a patent. We want the public to have access to that. They get a 20 year monopoly of sorts, but then at the end of it, everyone has access to it. And we don't want someone doing what Coca-Cola has done and keeping that secret indefinitely. Now, there are a lot of fair criticisms of the patent system, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with any of those. I'm more just sort of pointing out that, you know, some people don't like patents at all. Some people think we need different sorts of patent protection. You know, and my point is really, well, whether or not that's true, it really doesn't matter 
as between a person and a machine doing something, how you would want to encourage or protect that activity. Um, speaking of, of, of me being controversial, I, I do think I have the benefit of, of having time on my side. So it was interesting when I you know, first started asking, has anyone thought about this? The earliest paper that really talked about it was in 1969, uh, a guy named Carl Mild, who I looked online and appears to still be a public speaker, although I reached wow. out to him and didn't get a response. And you know, maybe the website's a little old, but he was active about 10 years ago. He wrote a paper saying, you know, could a machine be an inventor in 1969? Wow. And, and said, you know, clearly legislators at the time kind of weren't thinking about this when they wrote, you know, the Patent Act um, in 1965, kind of the most recent one. I think 1965, I'd have to check the date. But, um, you know, and now he had to hang in there for 40 more years. Wait a minute. No, 50 more years. And now we're finally getting a legal test case on the question. Um, so if you hang in there long enough, <laughs> I'm pretty confident that 50 years from now, people will look back at this and say, how did people ever debate that this was an issue, um, even if it's not so clear now? But frankly, I figured out that either way I win because um, you know, I can just keep waiting and either it'll happen or if it never does, I just have to keep waiting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's 1969, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, and, and so you, you were asking, you know, one of the things we try and get students to think about is to think about the law critically. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm glad to see you were exercising your critical skills, right? Not just saying, well, what is the laws, but why is it this way and what should it be? And so, I had my debut as a solicitor advocate in our high court case with, um, with our rejections from the UK IPO, which are different than kind of our rejections elsewhere, all of which are being appealed because in the UK, you know, for the court, well, firstly, for the patent office, they struck me in their opinion as being really rather sympathetic to our position. And, and didn't even say, you know, we disagree that, that you should be able to list an AI as an inventor or the owner should be able to own it. They said, you know, I think it's time to have a look at patent law. And in fact, they're launching their new consultation on views. But they said, but the Patents Act is really very clear. You couldn't list an AI as an inventor. And two, in high court, the issue was not, you know, should an AI be an inventor? Should we be able to obtain these sorts of patents? The judge there also said he was quite sympathetic to both of those positions. You know, the question is, what does the Patents Act say? And also everyone agreed that in writing the Patents Act, no one had even thought about what you would do if you didn't have a traditional human inventor. But the, the court's reasoning in that case was, you know, effectively the word person is used in this one sentence. And, you know, a machine does not fall within the ordinary meaning of a person and so we're going to say, essentially, you can't get a patent for this. Although the court then did really, to me, surprisingly say, um, you know, we think the solution to this is that you could deem a machine's owner the inventor. You know, the judge basically said, if you would like to say the machine's owner is an inventor by virtue of owning the machine, I would be inclined to do that. Um, but I think that creates some other problems under patent law, and, and well, we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, and I just want to clarify because for people in the in the UK, at least the law students, they'll probably will will have got all that. But for any of the Canadians listening, um, people might be thinking, well, just because the statute says that, so what? You're in court. Well, in the UK, because there's parliamentary supremacy, if there's a statute, it's up to the courts to then interpret what parliament meant. But ultimately, that has to be followed, uh, you know, more or less, right? Well, yeah, that is so it's a complicated question and it gets into statutory interpretation in different jurisdictions, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, civil law countries are far more about the role of the court is merely to interpret a statute. Mm -hmm. In common law jurisdictions, judges do have a bit more latitude about how to interpret something. You know, we went into court with the position, you know, that, well, there, you know, it's tricky on a lot of levels. One is even statutes that appear to be precise really are subject to a lot of different forms of interpretation. You know, like if you look at the Constitution of the United States of America, you know, there's really very little that is capable of literal textual analysis without anything else to bear. Like, the president has to be 35 years old, like, okay, we pretty much got that. But if you look at something like the second militia, or sorry, the second amendment, which is talking about the right to bear arms and the role of a militia, and you're wondering like, <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, does it mean anyone can have any arm they want? Does it mean that militias can have guns? Is the militia just sort of the purpose of the, the act? You know, uh, and there are all these different mechanisms of statutory interpretation from, you know, looking at it literally, if you can, right, which they're, it's awfully hard to figure out what literally they meant to originalism, which is, well, what would, you know, the people writing it have wanted, you know, to a more dynamic interpretation, which we're arguing for here, which is what is the underlying policy and what interpretation would best foster that policy. Uh, so I, I think the court could have come to a different conclusion. And in fact, on the reading we were arguing, there was never a requirement to have a machine be considered a person. Um, but, you know, this is why we have lawyers. And, and this is incidentally kind of in one of the other topics you're interested in about smart contracts, you know, having programmers make contracts on distributed ledger technologies and having programs self-executing between parties so you really don't need lawyers or don't need enforcement mechanisms. Well, you know, you can have two, you know, magic circle London law firms spend an unlimited amount of money haggling out a contract and inevitably there are going to be questions about what the contract says, what they meant, and this weird thing that has happened that somehow neither party was thinking about when they wrote the contract. Um, you know, this is incidentally one of the reasons why it may be hard to get people, you know, to automate lawyers and lawyering and judging, you know, though the vast majority of problems probably do fit neatly into something that an AI could resolve if sufficiently sophisticated. Well, that's why context is important because you're, you're showing up to court making arguments and that's what you have to consider is, well, what did they really mean by when they enacted this into statute? That that's where the arguments lie. There's a lot of nuance there, and and you know it can get pretty interesting pretty quick. I, I am quite surprised. That's actually what the judge said. I, I would have kind of thought if they said no, they would just kind of shut you down. But the fact that they kind of 
made that comment kind of gave it kind of gave you a little bit of hope like oh okay you know no well i think the court recognized the importance of the issue right and um you know different you know different judges have very different perspectives on things different courts different countries so you know in continental europe for example i think there's a lot more skepticism of our pro project in part because their intellectual property rights are much more about the moral rights of authors and inventors. Um, and there's a sense that these rights really exist to promote human values, whereas in the UK and the US, there's sort of a much more commercially friendly investment-based rationale for this, right? On, on the ultimate belief that having commercially friendly policies benefits people because it generates more commerce, entrepreneurship, wealth, and value for everyone. Um, you know, at least if you're appropriately taxing it and not giving it 100% to Jeff Bezos. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> this is why we need robot taxes, as the book also talks about, but not literal robot taxes. Um, yeah. Conceptual well, robot taxes. That's right, yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that in the, I think that's the next section, but you kind of got a good segue into there, which was um, one of the things that I... Um, so when we were preparing for the podcast, I, I basically read the book and then I picked uh, certain sections that I thought would be kind of the, the best ones to go through. And then you gave me your list. And uh, one of the ones I was pretty proud of myself that I, I came up with it. So I, I can thank all the Jordan Peterson I've been listening to. But one of the things that really struck me, and it's right in the beginning of the book, is page 18 uh, to 21. So it's just a few pages. But um, AI is an archetypal uh, construct. And one of the things that really struck me was, uh, I think you opened the section talking about uh, Homer and the, the Iliad. I'm pretty sure that was what you opened with. And the, the, and basically, long story short, he, he basically wrote about AI. Pr pretty shockingly, kind of the things that we would get AI to do today, like if you were writing a movie about it kind of thing, was very eerily similar to what he was talking about. And then you also threw in a couple other ones. Um, Frankenstein was in there, which we kind of had a laugh about off camera talking about that. Um, but that was, so that particular section, um, how did that kind of come about? Because it fits really well, but it's, it's all over the map in terms of like, there's a lot of disciplines shoved into that one section. So when, well, I mean, we'll talk about that, but how did that kind of come to be? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's important stuff. I mean, I think in part it gets to things like, you know, what, it, it gets at a few kind of key points for thinking about how to regulate something. You, you need to understand something about the nature of the thing that you're regulating. And, you know, in part that chapter was, defining AI, which is interesting, you know, really very strange to me mm -hmm. that you know, AI was first defined, you know, for the Dartmouth conference, you know, more than 50 years ago as, you know, something that if an intelligent person was so behaving, you know, if a person was so behaving, you know, ah, sorry, well, I messed up that definition, but basically it was a functional definition like the Turing test, you know, if a person would behave that way, we'd call it machine intelligent. Um, and we still don't have a widely accepted definition of AI today, which 
You know, almost every book or article about AI and law starts off talking about how we don't really have a definition of it. But it's also critically important to define things that you're about to regulate, because depending on what you think of as AI really changes what laws would apply to it. Or, you know, in the context of IP, you know, what sort of protections you get from things. And it is really interesting that we haven't gotten that far yet to have a very basic definition of terms. And, you know, some of these consultations that have happened now on AI and IP, some have been better than others about even trying to set a, uh, a foundation that people can generally agree on about what we're even talking about. And sometimes they just sort of just zoom off in one direction and and you think, well, wait, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. I don't think you understand what you're talking about. And this leads to a whole host of conclusions that I think are then invalid. Um, you know, that that is part of it. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways of looking and thinking about that, even in terms of, say, thinking about whether an AI thinks, right? I think the result should be functional. But, you know, one could ask biologically what, you know, biologically and mechanically, what's going on in a person, what's going on in the machine and how different they are, right? And then in terms of asking what's going on in a person, there's a lot of ways of thinking about that too. There is both a biomedical perspective on what happens in the brain and there is some level of understanding we have on that. You know, there are also philosophical, religious and spiritual ways of looking at whether a person is thinking. And, you know, some people are guided by religious or spiritual values around the nature of thought. You know, which also gets into interesting questions about can animals think? I mean, to me, I would certainly think that animals think, right? Other people wouldn't, or, or maybe they both think, but maybe there is some meaningful difference between the two other than the sophistication of people, you know, which is something we take for granted, but some animals can do some pretty sophisticated things, um, you know? And for example, you know, it would probably be impossible to have an animal invent something, but it is definitely possible to have an animal interchange for a human author for copyright, right? As you'll remember learning about in copyright, we have to have something be an original intellectual creation, but the bar for that is very low. You know, I'm just sitting here <laughs> talking and this has copyright protection because I'm coming up with it and animals can speak and elephants can paint and paint better than some people can paint. And, you know, it's not, it's not a, a masterpiece of art, but it is an elephant, you know, being creative in the way that a human author would be creative. And it, if you want to look at, um, you know, copyright rights as being associated with morality and individuality, it, it begs some really interesting questions about, well, what's the difference between an, a monkey and a person in that respect, right? Where the U.S. has just said, forget about it. <laughs> and um, I don't think that there's been a case in the UK on that, um, not that I'm aware of. Not yet, at least. <laughs> uh, not yet, at least. You're giving me ideas. I do like test cases. Uh, you know, the Homer is interesting because, you know, almost all of the issues that lawyers are now thinking about was thought of first by science fiction writers. You know, Isaac Asimov anticipated just about any of the interesting ethical quandaries one could have with a robot doing something, you know, and this was again decades often before I was born. And it is also interesting that if you just keep looking further and further back, so too as someone else had basically a similar sort of idea 
And, um, you know, even though they didn't have the means of doing it, a lot of these same ethical questions came up in, you know, religious or historical or cultural uh, contexts over thousands of years related to AI. And the same sort of things are playing out, um, you know, not that far from the Iliad to the Terminator. On top of which, um, I was going to say something else about that, but then I forgot. We'll leave it there. Sure. Yeah. Well, and and that's kind of one of the funny things is that, and and as I I'm, I'm burning through Jordan Peterson's entire um, Bible series. So I was uh, I was raised Catholic, and it's kind of funny. I'm I'm learning more about the the Bible now than I did all my years in Catholic school. I can tell you that much. Um, but even, I'm not going to mention it because I don't want to start stepping out of turn too far because I don't have the uh, confidence to be doing that or the understanding at this point. But even in listening to some of the later um, episodes going through the biblical stories, which are thousands of years old going back, you can start picking up certain archetypes and, and motifs that are, you know, from back then. And, and, you know, we like to think that we're so smart nowadays oh you know all those guys living in caves didn't know what the hell they were talking about well, you know look how look how smart we are it's like yeah yeah look how smart we are right and uh and that's kind of funny because that actually relates to to even um i think late the one of the later sections when uh the the rapid rate of technological growth just in the last like 50 years and you go through that the the iphone has more basically is Far got a lot more going on than the Apollo 11 rocket that went up to the moon. And it's like, and then you start thinking about that and it's like, and yeah, and what do we do with all this amazing technology? Instagram, you know, just all this stuff that, yes, there's lots of good things that we can, like, this is awesome that we can use technology to have a podcast where you're quite far away from where I am right now, but we're able to do this and, and hopefully create something positive out of this. Or, you know, you can spend 40 minutes looking at memes or, uh, you know, Instagram models, right? It's like, yeah, real advanced. <laughs> yes, I, I guess Steve Jobs probably wasn't thinking about um, Instagram when he was, was doing his work. But, um, <laughs> you know, some of that is exciting. I mean, yes, so to that extent, I, I suppose with all of these technological advances, we've had some unforeseen developments, which I think makes it kind of interesting. Um, you know, we don't know what the future was holds. Uh, e even if I were to try and predict what technology would do and what social impact would come from that from decades, you know, I'd be off and, and who would have seen QAnon coming? Um, but uh, I guess that just leaves us uh, something to be excited about. Well, and even the way that COVID has had a huge, I mean, obviously everybody talks about that, but I mean, think about this. I mean, who knows how long this is going to go on for, and then the the implications that will arise from that in pretty much every discipline, law included. Um, you know, just shit happens, right? <laughs> and you have to adapt. Yeah. yeah, COVID's probably not going anywhere too quickly. It, it's a complex thing to design a vaccine for, and then you've got to find manufacturing capabilities for hundreds of millions or billions of doses of it, assuming you've got an effective vaccine that has, you know, lasting impact. Yeah, could have done without COVID. Yeah, exactly. Right. Although, you know, it's hardly our first pandemic if you look at it historically, just sort of yeah. the first real one in living memory. Mm -hmm. It's a fun time. It's a fun year. <laughs> but um, it's been an event for you. 
Yes, exactly, right? One of the things, um, one of my favorite modules up at Surrey was uh, tax law with, with Ira, surprisingly, because uh, tax just scares the shit out of me. I just, as soon as I hear that, I just shut down. It, it's just intimidating. Is it you don't pay taxes? Yeah, you know, I just, you know, hey, ma, dad, can you take care of this for me? You know, they, they, they do all the hard work for me there. But oh, that's nice. Yeah, exactly, right? And you talk a lot about which you wouldn't think would be important. And then you read a few paragraphs, and you're like, oh, shit, yeah, this is pretty important. Um, as far as AI and the relationship with tax policy. And particularly, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was when you related, I'll start from the conclusion and then we'll work back. Uh, you mentioned that the money used from taxing um, automation could actually go to, hypothetically, could go towards contributing to universal basic income if that's how things play out. So that's how that chapter concludes. And then I think we'll work backwards and kind of going through that. So two of the themes that you talk about are, I'm just looking at my notes here, by the way, if you see me looking down, but um, tax neutrality and non-neutrality. So I'll throw the ball over to you if you wanna dive into those. Yeah, um, I, I... right. So, you know, th there's an existing body of scholarship on labor, you know, and a couple kind of key reports that generated a lot of buzz, you know, several years ago, basically arguing that we were going to face widespread unemployment due to advances in AI. And it's not a new sort of thing that people have been concerned about. I mean, people were concerned about that during the first industrial revolution. And people were concerned about that back in the 1950s and 60s, you know, with uh, manufacturing automation and with, you know, computers. And again, with personal computers, people were concerned about it. And it turned out, on the one hand, never to be that valid of a concern because automation did take away a lot of jobs, but ended up creating more jobs than it destroyed. So, you know, around the turn of the 19th century, you know, about 40% of people worked in agriculture as workers, and now it's closer to 3%, but we don't have 38% unemployment. Uh, those people have found new jobs. Agriculture is way more productive and everyone's really benefited. Although, you know, it has been a rough process and people who are put out of work, you know, it is scant consolation to them that on the whole, the economy is going to approve and someday there's going to be more jobs when they are out of a job and unable to support themselves. So that that's sort of a best case scenario that even if we do find all these new jobs for people, it still really results in a few people not doing too well, right? And option two is, well, we've never really had something that is like artificial general intelligence, right? So if you ever did have artificial general intelligence, which is to say a machine that could do anything a person could do, right, functionally, you'd have a real problem because from a labor perspective, because, you know, you could copy that artificial general intelligence at almost no cost, have it operate at almost no cost. And if it could do just about anything a person could do, well, it's not that clear what just about everyone would be needed to do, because uh, you could have a machine do it almost costlessly. But, but even if we stick with narrow artificial intelligence 
which is just AI that could do sort of specific tasks, you know, the, the level of task that AI can do never goes down. Once it masters a task, you know, it always has that mastery or better, right? And there's only a certain number of tasks that we really have people do. And so even without hitting artificial general intelligence, we might hit a point someday where you just have AI that can do enough. You don't really need all those extra people for it. And we're not there yet. And people are really across the board on when we'll get AGI. Some people think we'll never get AGI or when AI will get to the point that it can result in widespread automation. But if you did have that problem, um, you'd have a lot of people, you'd have more value and wealth for society, but a lot of people out of jobs. And, and what would you do about that besides nothing? <laughs> and, you know, the what pretty much everyone can agree on is it would be good to train people with new job skills, right? That takes money though. And then if you really didn't have all these other new jobs for people, what would you do there? Well, it seems like if we just don't have jobs for people, the only real solution is a universal basic income, which is the government just pays everyone regardless of their circumstances. And, um, you know, that takes a lot of money. It is strange that AI may be generating more wealth, but not necessarily resulting in more tax revenue. And, and the way to see this is, you know, when you walk into a McDonald's just about anywhere now, you have automatic tellers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, particularly with COVID, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But basically, you have a machine that's doing the same job as a person. You walk in, you give it your order, it processes your order, and then it sends the order along. But when you have a person and a machine doing exactly the same thing, they're subject to different tax rules. So in the UK and in the US, the employer has to pay taxes on top of a person's salary for their benefits. And they don't have to pay that with a machine, which means that if a machine and a person cost exactly the same amount, the tax policy is actually driving the AI to be cheaper and thus inefficiently subsidizing automation. And there are other provisions of the tax code that do that. They're a little more complicated, but they have to do with when you can claim deductions um, and um, you know, things of that nature. The point just being that we really hadn't designed a tax code in, with automation in mind. And with automation, it's, it's driving things a bit out of whack. And if one had a neutral tax code so that a person was not disadvantaged compared to an AI, then a business should only automate where it makes sense for them from non-tax reasons and not to save on taxes, which isn't socially useful. The other problem is that almost all of our revenue comes in one way or another from labor taxes. So almost all tax revenue is from in the US from payroll taxes, which are um, you know, withholdings on people's income and then income taxes, which again, taxes money that they've made largely through employment. Business taxes, corporate taxes make up now about 9% of the tax base. And so if you replace that person at McDonald's, you lose their payroll taxes, they don't pay income taxes, and maybe McDonald's gets more profitable, and maybe it actually doesn't even get more profitable. But either way, a very small amount of the money it's saving gets remitted as tax revenue. And so widespread automation might really harm our tax collections, which while no one likes paying taxes, represent kind of our aggregate social wealth for spending on the well-being of a state and its citizens. 
and pays for things like healthcare, education, and uh, military defense. And if what we're going to need to do with widespread automation or even to alleviate individual circumstances from automation is to retrain people and provide the benefits, we may not have the money to do that. So what I think we should do is have a more neutral tax code where we don't tax robots because it would be very difficult to do that. It would be very expensive to do that and it would produce some bad outcomes. But to say, you know, we've always taxed labor because we think it's easier to tax labor and we think that labor is less mobile than capital because we think, oh, if we tax capital, people won't invest in the United States, they'll go invest in Europe. Um, you know, that we start taxing capital more. And I think it, you know, is not an entirely valid argument to say that, well, you can't tax capital because it discourages investment and it encourages money to leave. You know, there's no tax on capital in the Cayman Islands and you don't see everyone rushing to invest in businesses over there. You know, the U.S. has a very large developed market. People will develop here because they get returns on investment, because they have infrastructure, because they have stable court systems and rule of law. Um, and, you know, most people aren't going to choose not to invest their capital, you know, or if they're spending it, really, that's fine, too. That's also generating tax revenue. This was really discussed a lot uh, during the last presidential election, uh, mostly by uh, Andrew Yang, who was talking a lot about, well, kind of seemed like it was sort of the only thing he was talking about, but someone was talking about it. Um, is that the, I mean, okay, he was talking about some different stuff, but a little bit of that stuff was at least in the public, uh, public sphere. Is that, because I haven't been following anything uh, news related since March, but with the new um, yeah, I know. Pretty probably common, good. Right? <laughs> yeah, I no way, man. Too negative. I'm focusing on me. Can't deal with it. But um, is that is any of this stuff being discussed at all with uh, uh, Dumb and Dumber, uh, Trump and Biden at all, or is it just kind of more of a cat fight and that's kind of about it? Hmm. Well, right. Andrew Yang was this presidential election, but he was in the presidential primaries for, for Democratic president. And yes, this was like his issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, that the machines were coming and would take all our jobs. And two, that regardless of that, right now we needed universal basic income. Yeah. There were, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, you know, and him were, I think, kind of leading the pack in proposing more progressive tax policies. And, you know, between them, you had a difference of opinion about how best to achieve that. You know, is it through a wealth tax? Was it through a universal basic income? Was it for higher uh, income tax rates on businesses or on high earners? You know, but I think all three were united in, in having a vision of a more distributionally fair tax system, which the U.S. really doesn't have. You know, tax rates on the wealthy are not, you know, on high earners and on businesses are not that much higher necessarily than low and medium wage earners. But more importantly, they have the ability to um, avoid a number of taxes. And so their effective tax rates are often really at about the same level as people earning not a lot of money. Right. Or as we saw from the um, Donald Trump tax releases, right, some years he was paying effectively nothing. Yeah. Um, Joe Biden has not proposed a particularly progressive tax policy platform. Um, 
I will say that Donald Trump, if you believed in the arguments I'm making in the book, Donald Trump is, is going in precisely the opposite direction, <laughs> though not for reasons discussed in the book, right? He right. is adopting kind of a very traditional conservative economic belief that if you put less tax on capital and high earners, that they will reinvest that money, work more, generate more wealth, and it will all trickle down to people. Um, yeah, because it's really funny because it, it seems like the, the solution that you're proposing, it seems very like a very elegant solution to a very complicated issue. But just in the sense that if you accept the hypothesis, which it seems to be the case, that robots are going to start replacing more and more human laborers, that you make that transition as far as tax policy is neutral so that there's, it mitigates the, the negative blowback from switching over. That seems, like that seems to make a lot of sense, right? And other than you, are there any other jurisdictions or politicians or whoever you want to say that is it kind of getting headway or because if, if they're not talking about it in the States, then. Um, they're talking about it in the States. Well, I mean, firstly, Andrew Yang was talking about it a lot. And, yeah. and I think the idea of a robot tax really entered the public consciousness in 2017 when Bill Gates said, you know, we ought to think about doing something like this. And, um, you know, the European Parliament had an expert report which proposed a potential robot tax. And then they decided not to do that, right, in the name of discouraging investment and innovation. Um, but people are definitely talking about it. And I think even in the democratic primaries, kind of the broader issue of how egalitarian we want our tax base to be uh, received a lot of attention. So. You know, if we had had a different Democratic presidential nominee, right, if Warren or Biden or Yang had been the, um, the Democratic presidential nominee, I think something like this was on the table for them, you know, but hard to say if Biden gets elected, what will happen. And, you know, also hard to say, I think Biden has perhaps wisely figured out that his best bet at this stage is to kind of get out of the way and, and see if, you know, he can avoid doing anything that would offend too many people and yeah. just to kind of play at middle of the road until he's elected. And, and so who really knows if he's elected, if there's a democratic landslide, if there isn't some sort of major, you know, tax legislation, you know, but hard to say it is in any case, something that was a key issue in the, in the, uh, the primaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and it just sounds like, to be honest, it just sounds like Trump is just trying to kind of double down on getting elected and just dialing into that conservative narrative. So it seems like it's more just political crap anyway than actual. It, it, is, it is genuinely surprising, though, that, that not that some people wouldn't support Trump's tax policies out of self-interest, because it does benefit people who have money and corporations. But it is surprising that so much of the country supports a policy that is kind of against their direct self-interest. USA. <laughs> you know, this is some masterful, this is some masterful marketing. It, it, yeah. 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 No, I know. But um, 
I should have taken a lesson or two from my book and uh yeah exactly right well we'll, we'll switch gears because i know we're talking about tax because i know we're so basically for people who are listening you got to get the book because um we're we're just picking very very small chunks to discuss so you got to buy the book to get the whole thing but we're jumping like 20 pages ahead of what we were just discussing but i think it's a, a fun one so this um this section uh tort so going from the standard of care um from the reasonable person to the reasonable robot which is the name of the book um I'll kind of introduce it and I'll, I'll hand it over to you. So um, this section pretty much, uh, like I said, talks about tort. So largely when you discuss uh, negligence. So if I'm driving my car and I drive into Ryan Abbott and there determines to be a, a, a tort brought for negligence, basically the question is what would a reasonable person have done in my position and then that is used to determine whether or not the defendant will be liable or not, essentially. It was very, hopefully it's a- Right, you, you left out of your hypothetical that you'd run someone over or cause an accident, but yes. Yeah, I ran you over real good. I hit you real good. <laughs> you, you, you ran me over good. Um, you know, it, it, it's probably the best way of doing this sort of thing because it's just sort of impossible in advance to come up with a rule for every sort of thing as a driver that you could do that would be something we don't want you to do. It, it is so kind of complex and fact specific. We just want to have a standard that says, you know, what would this reasonable person have done? What would you, the jury, have done? And if he did what you would have done, he's fine. And if you misbehaved, he's not. Right. And what you're proposing is, is that rather than the established uh, reasonable person test, that we make the switch over to the reasonable robot standard or test, I guess you can use interchangeably. So what exactly is that? Right, and, and so a bit like taxes and a bit like IP, essentially, again, you have the phenomenon that people and machines are doing the same sorts of things and are again, subject to different rules. And self-driving is, I think, a really good context to look at this at, although we'll even see robots doing surgery and robots practicing law. Uh, you know, but one of the reasons it's good is it's a discrete sort of activity and it's a commercially very valuable technology that, you know, within the 2020s is going to be everywhere, almost certainly, although some people said that last decade, so we'll see. Um, but basically, you can have a, you can have Marcus driving, you can have an Uber driver driving, you can have a self-driving Tesla. And if they all cause the same accident in the same circumstances, they have different well, anyway, forget the Uber driver. But you and the Tesla have different liability standards. The robot has a stricter one because it's a commercial product and you have a more lenient one. And I don't think that's a good policy because while we want a lot of things out of torts, you know, tort law, mainly what we want is to reduce accidents and promote safety. And having a stricter liability standard on the car means people are going to be less inclined to use it because it costs them more factoring in the cost of accidents, right? Even if the technology is safer. So you wouldn't want to use the car if it was less safe, but if the car was less safe, then it would be liable under a negligence standard because it wouldn't have behaved like a reasonable person. And if the car was more safe than a reasonable person and caused an accident, you wouldn't want to hold it liable because then you would be encouraging use of a safer technology. 
But what's kind of interesting when you think about this is, you know, there's a lot of financial pressures on AI developers and users and markets, right? And tort liability is just one thing. And I suspect that you will get automation kind of regardless of tort liability, just because the financial benefits are so absolutely overwhelming, right? Like Uber's business model really at the end of the day depends on having a fleet of self-driving cars and not having to pay human employees to do this. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons for them just to relentlessly improve the safety of self-driving cars. You know, self-driving cars will get to the level of a person and then people will never get better, but self-driving cars will just keep getting better. The software will get better, the hardware will get better. Um, you know, the data it has to make these decisions will get better. It's likely to get to a point where a self-driving car almost never causes an accident, even an accident that a human couldn't have prevented, right? A kid jumps out in front of your car and you slam on the brakes, but there's nothing you can do. Well, a self-driving car might have had radar to see the kid coming at an angle, right? Even jumping into the street at night may have ultra-fast decision-making, um, you know, can slam on the brakes and avoid an accident. And there, what will actually probably be more important for the standard, I mean, it, it won't matter whether or not we hold the robot liable because there will be so few accidents, it just won't make a big difference commercially. But what will still be causing a lot of accidents is human drivers because Human error causes 94% of accidents. And then we'll have a choice between sharing a road between you and a car and a Tesla that wouldn't have hit me. And at that point, what do we do about it? And one solution that Elon Musk has proposed and some others is, well, we should ban human driving, which has a certain appeal to it. I mean, driving is kind of dangerous and there isn't a good substitute for it right now. But if we had self-driving cars everywhere, we wouldn't need to expose people to that sort of risk. On the other hand, that does seem to take something valuable away from us. But if we held people to the standard of a machine, then you can drive all you want. But if you cause an accident that that machine wouldn't have caused, you know, why shouldn't you be liable for the harm you cause? Why should I as a victim have to suffer from you choosing to create this danger? Yeah, and it, it raises obviously the, the obvious issue of autonomy as well, because, well, okay, obviously right now, the, the technology hasn't evolved, uh, hasn't been around long enough yet to just ban, like just to ban all human drivers is not, not practical now. It's a fun thing to say, and it's a fun thing to think about, but that might not be too far off. I think that's sort of what people are missing is that you know, I don't think it would be outlandish in the next 10, 20 years to maybe not necessarily a ban, but certainly it's not going to make sense for me to hop in my car because and drive because the risks associated with it are just going to, why would you do that? It just doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't hold a loaded gun to your face. You just don't do stuff like that because the chances of that thing, chances of something not working out for you are pretty high. So if it turns into a situation where it just doesn't make practical sense anymore to hop in your car and to drive around, I guess you could sort of rely on the fact that it's infringing a basic human right in as far as autonomy goes. But what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, I mean, a lot of these decisions do involve, you know, balancing different normative goals and you can't necessarily have everything. I mean, the idea of banning human drivers, I don't think it's that outlandish. 
you know, it's hard to tell how quickly and how well these technologies will develop. You know, again, speaking of Elon Musk, he said last decade, oh, we'll have these in all Teslas and they'll be driving themselves by 2019, right? Um, a number of companies predicted in the next couple of years they were going to, to have really fully self-driving cars. Although with COVID, I, I guess we'll give yeah. them a bit of a force majeure extension on it. But, um, uh, you know, again, it could happen very quickly because once a self-driving car outperforms a person, you've already hit that benchmark. Every future car will outperform a person. And we're probably not that far away from it. And, um, you know, they will only get much better and people will never get much better. And on the one hand, it does take something away to people to say you can't drive. But on the other, it costs 30,000 lives a year. So, you know, someone has to decide whether human, you know, whether this particular element of human freedom is worth the lives of 30,000 people a year, or in the world, a million people a year die from auto accidents. And just to be clear, I, I'm not saying that I'm in favor of banning human driving. I think kind of a happy medium is you adopt this standard where you get to decide whether to drive, but the risks of driving are on you. You cause an accident, you're liable for it. Right now, in some sense, it's an odd system that, that says we want negligence. You know, it, you could also have a tort system which basically says you're strictly liable for any harms that you cause. So why shouldn't, if you run me over, you be liable for that, regardless of whether you were driving with reasonable care? Well, you know, again, right now, it's because we do want to encourage people to drive. It is a socially useful activity. There isn't a great alternative. And as long as you're behaving as a reasonably prudent person, we wouldn't want to penalize you. But, but now we'll have another option. Yeah. Well, and that actually... That, you know, that kind of whole uh, framework for this is a, a tort scenario. So yeah, talking about liability in that sense, but for um, one of the things in the sections of the book that I actually had a bit of a tough time understanding. So I'm glad that I get to ask the question to you now. Um, as far as punishing AI crime, I had a bit of a tough time with that one. So I thought that would be fun to kind of go through. And you start off that section, just sort of generally talking about um, every law student will laugh at this one, but uh, HLA Hart's five criteria for that and uh, five factors for that. And uh, so I got a kick out of that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. But um, jurisprudence. That's right. Yeah. And but yeah, just kind of running through that. So we kind of understand what it means to hold either AI or uh, humans liable in that tort sense. Um, but how does that relate in a criminal sense? H how do we conceptualize that from a criminal perspective? Right, well, so most areas of the law are at least arguably pretty focused on, on consequentialist or utilitarian outcomes, which is to say, you know, if I make the legal rule this, what will the outcome be? And then I want a rule that promotes the best sort of outcome. So for example, you know, with tax law, we want a law that, um, you know, the tax on this will be this, the tax on this will be this, and thus we will generate enough revenue. We will not be unfair in who we're taxing. We will encourage certain sorts of activities we want to encourage. 
you know, in tort law, it's, you know, I'll have liability standards be this, and then we'll reduce accidents, we'll compensate victims, you know, we won't unduly restrict economically productive activity. In IP law, it's, you know, we want with patents to encourage innovation, we want with copyright to encourage creative production. Criminal law is probably, you know, the branch of law that is most concerned with deontological reasons for doing things. In other words, we're not just doing things because we think they have good outcomes, we're doing things because we think they're the right thing to do. And you do have that a bit in other areas of law, but, but most of all in criminal law. And for that reason, criminal law is particularly concerned not just with someone's behavior, which is also normally what the law focuses on for a variety of reasons that are good, but also on someone's intrinsic motivations for doing something. You know, with IP, we often don't care, you know, what was an inventor thinking, you know, or why did they do something? We just care, did they invent something, you know, or when you run me over, you know, we don't generally ask, what were you thinking when you ran me over? Just was it reasonable or was it not? But with criminal law, we usually do ask that. And so we usually require not only that someone has done some sort of bad thing, you know, perhaps even the sort of thing that would constitute a tort, like running me over, right? But that you had some sort of particularly bad mindset, like you wanted to run me over, or at least you kind of weren't paying any attention at all to the road and like were indifferent to the fact that you might well run me over. And it raises interesting questions, at least philosophical ones, when you have machines that are behaving like people, but certainly not necessarily with the same sort of intrinsic motivations for doing things, right? And so it begs the interesting question of, well, if a machine functionally committed a crime, would it make any sense or could you hold a machine liable for committing a crime, right? Or would that be something that we would want to do? And I'm not in favor of doing that. And the book kind of um, goes through why that is, but it does, I think, shed some fascinating light on why it is that we hold people liable for crimes and why it is that we hold companies liable for crimes because you know, it's not that outlandish, even though it seems ridiculous, like saying we should tax robots, you should have robot inventors, you should convict a robot of a crime. We commit, we uh, convict companies of crimes, even though companies don't literally have any mental states, right? Even though companies don't have any intrinsic motivations for doing things. And, and that's done on a few different reasons. I mean, critics of this can say, you know, look, a company is composed of people who are agents of the company, and it's really wrong to hold a company liable for a crime. Anytime you convict a company of a crime, there's really a person there who you should be convicting instead. So, you know, for, you know, some company committing insider trading, um, you know, there was really just someone in there who made the decision to do that. For some company illegally marketing drugs to doctors, you know, there was really some sales rep in there who was doing it. You know, and that's one theory, you know, but that theory is problematic, you know, for a variety of reasons, including, you know, it is, it is difficult to delve that necessarily invasively into why companies do things. And there's often many people involved in the decision and there's group thinking, there's companies, policies and procedures, and it doesn't necessarily reduce perfectly to one person, or even if it does, it may not be practical to do it. Right, and there's the other thought, which is that a company really is more than a sum of its individual agents, 
that there are kind of group thinking activities and group motivations for doing things that don't precisely reduce to individuals, right? And so, A, we already convict artificial persons of crimes, even without literal mental state. So maybe that makes sense with AI. And AI seems to have a lot of those same qualities. You know, for most AI, it's just a tool. And you could probably reduce whatever an AI is doing to a person. So if I program an AI to steal Bitcoin from your, you know, wallet online, that's really me committing a crime, you know, the same way as if I was there with you and I picked up your laptop and I hit you in the head, that would be me committing a battery, not the computer committing a battery. But as AI gets more autonomous, as more and more can people contribute to AI in ways that are not directly irresponsible, right? You could have an independent agent, entity out there functionally engaging in criminal sorts of harms without a person that it'd be fully reducible to. And that's the sort of case that, that I look at in the book and that Alex and I looked at in the article. Um, and we just sort of thought, you know, what would it look like if you wanted to say that was criminal? And so in, in that, um, in this instance then, is the idea then to find a coherent way to criminalize people who use AI for nefarious purposes? Or is it more in the sense that once this, once AI starts evolving and, and starts getting a little more intelligent, then that we will have to then decide, do we hold that itself? Like how you said, kind of like, are we gonna hold the laptop liable or is it just gonna be, do you know what I mean? Right, so I think the answer to the first one's a lot easier, right? I mean, firstly, we already do have ways of holding people liable for using AI to commit crimes. And it is likely that there are or will be some sort of gaps in how we do that. And I think that it is relatively simply addressed, at least theoretically, you know, that we have new laws that, you know, stipulate anyone sort of intending some criminal behavior by an AI, even if they're not directly responsible in it or held liable for it. No, I think the more difficult question is when you have an AI that is that behaves in a way that we would call criminal if a person did it, right? So again, a functional sort of analysis, right? That is not irreducible to the wrongful criminal act of one person. So you can't say, yes, the AI, you know, hit you on the head with a hammer, but it's just because I told it to do that, right? Um, you know, I teach an AI how to hit something with a hammer and then it goes out and starts hitting people on the head with hammers. Um, you know, how do we deal with that? Both from a utilitarian sort of perspective, you know, the behavior that we want to impact to keep that sort of thing from happening is human behavior, right? So we want laws that impact how the owners, users, and developers of AI make AI, right? But two is, if you have this sort of entity that is out independently committing things that we would think of as being criminal, you know, theoretically, is there a way to call that criminal and call the AI, you know, a criminal? And, you know, Alex and I went through the criminal law and thought that really criminal law doctrine is pretty flexible in terms of the legal fiction that it allows, right? I mean, in large part from these criminal fiction, these legal fictions essentially about holding corporations liable. And so, you know, there really isn't any sort of absolute theoretical barrier to 
to saying that an AI has done something criminally liable. You know, there are ways you could do it like with respondent superior, which is where you impute the mental states of agents of a company to the company. That's how we hold corporations largely liable, although that doesn't work with AI as well, for example, because, you know, particularly in the case we're concerned about, you don't have agents who you could readily impute the mental state to, you know, but, but more aggressively, you know, in the way that we have a mens rea requirement, you know, this mental state requirement, we often convict people on the basis of mens rea that we, um, you know, somewhat fictionalized by asking, well, what do we think someone's mental state was? If I come up to you and hit you on the head with a hammer and kill you, you know, I probably won't say to a jury, I was trying to kill you, but a jury sort of infers intent from looking at the circumstances of behavior. And so we could have something sort of analogous to a machine. If you have a self-driving car that sort of targets investment bankers and runs them over, you know, we may not know what a machine was thinking, but you could essentially apply the same rules and say, well, if a person was doing that, we would infer a certain intent. So we will choose to do that for an AI. Or you could even get into the programming of an AI and say, you know, if an AI is programmed to achieve a certain goal and acts in a way to achieve that goal, you know, we can take the AI's goal as being the intent of a person for Mandrea. At the end of the day, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to hold AI criminally liable for a lot of reasons, both because, you know, functionally, the person you want to impact is the developer, owner, and user of an AI. And in criminal law, unlike in these other areas, you don't get a lot by going after the AI directly. I mean, you could have benefits because if you destroy like a, a chappy robot from that movie that's hitting someone on the head with a, a, a hammer and destroy it because it's convicted of a crime, you know, that punishes the machine's owner who you know, then loses their valuable property, so maybe this changes their behavior, right? But it's probably easier to have laws that directly impact AI owner users and developers, and it would be a radical legal change, right? Some countries are more set up to do that than others, right? Like India, for example, recognizes many legal persons which are not natural persons, you know, including deities and nature and Bolivia, I believe, has recognized Mother Earth as a legal entity. So you could have a legal change like that, but also we're just not as a society terrorized by robot criminals yet that are acting autonomously. And for a legal change of this significance, it probably would be a very bad idea. But theoretically, there's not necessarily some immutable legal principle standing in the way of it. And one of the things that this kind of usefully does for us, I think, is, is help us think about why and the ways in which we punish people and companies. And if, you know, in the case of AI robots, what we're really concerned about is, is more of a utilitarian basis, which is prohibiting antisocial behavior than a deontological reason of punishing someone or being morally culpable, you know, then maybe that suggests we should do less to criminalize mental states, you know, which would particularly argue against like thought crimes where you know, anything you do in furtherance of a terrorist intent is a crime. We're really delving invasively and maybe not that effectively into someone's rationale for doing some things. So keeping the sort of the ethical and the, and the moral questions aside and the mens rea stuff aside, largely the question when it comes to punishment 
or whether or not to punish, I guess, is largely a question of reducibility then, if I got that part? Um, well, I was saying that if, if everything a robot does is reducible to the act of a person, just the way that everything a company does is reducible to the act of a person, there's a lot less need for a separate legal doctrine of punishing a robot or a company. Because then you could just say, well, what do I need this for? Let me just punish the person. And you know, when you punish a company, you get some innocent spillover. So, you know, ultimately when companies get convicted of crimes, the real victims of that are company shareholders. And if it's say, you know, like a publicly traded company, you know, the people who own shares, the pension funds that own shares, they didn't have anything to do with the crime being committed, but they're the one at the end of the day who are suffering financially from it. You might say it would be much cleaner if we could find the executive at the company who authorized the illegal act and we just punish that person, right? Because why should the shareholders suffer? You know, similarly for robots, if you can always find someone who programmed a machine to do a bad thing, I think there's a lot less need to, to end up even trying to go against the machine. Although there are expressive benefits to doing that. So for example, you know, one reason we punish is to show that we are punishing and to, re to vindicate and reaffirm the rights of victims. So, you know, if you got run over by a self-driving car that targeted Canadians, um, you know, we might want to say, we're going to punish this car because this sort of behavior, even by a robot, just isn't acceptable in civilized society, and we're going to make a statement, right? That cuts both ways. You know, it also cuts the way that someone thinks, well, you're also kind of treating the car like a person, and... I'm not so happy with the idea that we're doing that. Um, you know, and this may further kind of result in people anthropomorphizing AI activity because AI behaves like a person, but AI is not like a person. Um, and that does sometimes mean we need different rules for it. That actually makes a lot of sense. I was actually very nervous to talk about that section because I'm like, oh God, I didn't really understand it. But no, that actually makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And, it, and it's funny when you talk about, um, making a statement because the law does that a lot where where you'll you'll look at particularly when we did criminal law and you, you'll look at the justifications as to why they why the court decided the way it did and you're like logically that doesn't really make sense and that's kind of what you're pointing out the the anthropomorphizing of ai is probably not a good idea but hey, we're sending a message. It's like, yeah, okay, but think about that for more than a second. Just because it feels good, you know, that's one thing, for, but what's that gonna do logically and, and the precedent that it sets? That might be a potentially bad idea at the end of the day. Right, well, you know, and this gets to the sort of longstanding concerns about punishing someone because it's just or because it's expedient and, um, you know, giving into mob justice. So we probably wouldn't want to punish a robot just because the public demands it. That would, uh, that would not be furthering the, the beneficially normative goals of, of criminal law. That's why I got to say, man, I, out of all the areas of law, I, criminal law is just my absolute favorite because it, you can throw in so much of the philosophy and it's just really, you know, even just the, the deontological perspectives 
the, because you just think people just think, oh, punishment's punishment. And it's like, no, no, no. But there's actually very specific areas of thought and some overlap too about the reasoning behind that. It gets very interesting. Well, it does. And while we're speaking about it at all, you know, there is a difference between a criminal conviction and punishment. So you, you talked about Hart's criteria for what punishment is. But, but another question is, could you even punish an AI? You know, and, and again, like, does an AI think it depends on how you define punishment? And Hart requires punishment to have, you know, something that is effectively kind of subjectively negatively felt. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, yes, you could destroy a machine, but it wouldn't interpret this as it being punished because a machine is indifferent to its own existence. Now, that, that too really gets to some fundamental questions about how we punish people. So, you know, for example, there was a Nor Norwegian mass murderer whose name I can't pronounce, but who, <laughs> you know, shot a number of people in recent years as a political statement. And he wanted to go to prison. He wanted to go to prison to further his own political agenda. Right. So, you know, question whether that's punishment. Um, you know, going to prison is punishment for most people, but not necessarily everyone. Some people want to be in prison for whatever idiosyncratic reason. Um, and so question whether you could ever really punish something like AI at all. This gets, this gets back to really ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle, who thought that, you know, trees or plants could be excellent to the extent that they achieve their biological function. You know, that's an excellent tree and that one is not. Uh, you know, Philippa Foote more recently is a philosopher who echoed some of those statements. And so maybe you could say, well, an AI is designed to do this. So if you prevent it from doing it, you're punishing it. Right. And other philosophers more recently have said, you know, yeah, we say like that's an excellent tree, but, but really to mean, um, you know, that something has a characteristic goodness or badness, it has to have subjective feelings. So, you know, a dog you could punish and it could subjectively feel something, but, you know, a tree is pretty indifferent to whether it's cut over or not, right? And so maybe you could never, maybe you just simply couldn't punish an AI. It wouldn't feel it as punishment, but um, we could at least call it punishment for expressive reasons and we could at least convict it of a crime. Well, and then that's the, when you can, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and, and that's what there's just a bit of a delay there, but that's then that's when you can start relying on those legal fictions, because then that's what allows you to conceptualize those abstract ideas in that way, where it kind of makes logical sense. That was all I was going to say. <laughs> that was well said. So I guess we'll go over kind of like the last section. We've been talking a lot about why the ideas in the book are good and well, like a good lawyer, right? We always have to think about, well, maybe some of these ideas are not so good, and this is why. One of the things that you highlighted right away was that, and actually, I have a, I have a note here that says paper clips. I can't remember why. I can't remember the, the, the I think, yeah, you seem to remember what it is, but remember the paper clip. Yeah, it made me laugh. So we'll talk about the paper clip thing. But just one of the notes that I have is that, actually, this is a direct quote. So while AI might identify and solve problems that society is unaware of, it obviously might also cause harm in unpredictable ways. And I guess we can just start there. Right. Well, th this gets a lot. So this gets at the idea that, you know, people think AI is going to cause harm and, and going to cause harm in ways people wouldn't cause harm. And your paperclip example was a, 
was a thought experiment by Nick Bostrom, who said, you know, you may tell an AI that you want it to make paper clips, but if you develop a powerful enough AI, it may, you know, start a war to make paper clips or take over all the resources of the earth. And, and yes, an AI isn't going to just wake up one day and decide it wants to eliminate humans. But if you're not careful and you give it enough power, you know, AI doesn't have common sense or a moral compass. And, uh, you know, you have to be careful about things like that. And I certainly think that's true. There's no arguing with it. But, you know, I think that people and machines really are held to a double standard for things like this and for things like bias. And I think if this year has shown us anything, it is that, you know, people are capable of causing great harm. And one of the reasons that we have laws is to restrain people's ability to cause harm, to manage risk, and to have systems of checks and balances in place. And you know, saying that we should have legally neutral laws between human and AI behavior isn't the same as saying we should deregulate AI, right? I mean, in fact, I think AI is already subject to regulations. They just may not be regulations people have really thought carefully about in the context of AI. You know, but absolutely, you wouldn't want to build a super intelligent machine to make paper clips and set it loose without any restraint. You know, but those same sorts of concerns you have are about, you know, giving someone access to an unlimited number of nuclear weapons and setting them loose without constraints, right? We, we have systems and laws to constrain risk, and that sort of thing should apply to people as well as machines. And, um, you know, I think that the risks that machines pose are not, you know, as novel or unmanageable as people like to pretend. You know, one area where AI has gotten a lot of flack has been in criminal decision making. So, you know, the, the highest profile example being ProPublica's reporting on the Compass algorithm, which was helping judges make bail determinations. And, you know, so that was a, an algorithm basically telling a judge, yes, let this person out with bail pending their trial or don't. And ProPublica argued, well, this machine is making racially biased determinations and the company said it wasn't. And, you know, it was hard to tell in part because they didn't release the algorithm. Right? And it was hard to tell why an algorithm was doing that. For that matter, it, it may not even be possible for them if it's based on machine learning and they kind of don't do an adequate dive into figuring out how it's structured. And, and so those are legitimate concerns and they shouldn't be dismissed and they should be managed and there should be requirements for transparency and explainability, you know, particularly in context where there isn't a universal right answer to something. You know, if I, if I have an AI robot surgeon cutting out my cancer. I don't really care that I know how it operates or that it's transparent if I know what the right answer is, right? I know it has cut a cancer out with clean pathological margins. You know, but when you're sending someone to jail or not, there isn't some universal right answer to that question. So I do really want the AI to say, this is the decision I made and this is why I made it. Um, you know, but, but people give AI a lot of criticism for bias, which it obviously often has and needs to be addressed without addressing the fact that human judges have a lot of bias. And in fact, right now in the United States, we're as kind of dystopian as people think AI being in law enforcement is, we're witnessing a social movement across the United States effectively arguing that human police officers have bias. And it's very difficult to correct bias in people. You know, both because people aren't as explainable as we think, you know, rarely will a police officer say, well, I did that because I didn't like the person's gender or race. 
you know, they'll come up with some explanation about why they did something, um, you know, and two, you know, they're not going to admit to being biased. And three, you know, it is hard to correct these sort of longstanding beliefs. I think it's going to be a lot easier to correct machines when we detect that they have these biases. You can overwrite the way machines behave or put rules in that require them not to be biased. And so, you know, AI may be at least a substantial part of the solution to bias and things like policing and judging. Um, and I'm really rather optimistic about its potential. Although, right, just because it has the potential to be helpful doesn't mean that it will be. And this is why, indeed, we need laws and regulations to ensure that it's used for social good. You know, not to be either too optimistic or pessimistic in human nature. I mean, it certainly works both ways. People can have, you know, people can be good people. People have moral compasses. People have common sense, right? All things AI can lose and, so, you know, doesn't have. And so there's a lot of risk with AI. But, you know, there's this movement in Canada in particular to ban killer robots. Um, and, and I don't have a strong feeling about killer robots. But, you know, I almost think that if Canada were to invade the United States, and a soldier were to knock on the door of my house, I would rather have it be a robot soldier than a human soldier because the robot soldier isn't gonna be afraid for its own life. The robot soldier isn't going to act kind of out of base emotion or you know, do the sorts of things that some soldiers have done historically, not respecting the rule of law. You know, The robot soldier may go haywire and kill everyone in the house, but um, you know, there are risks with both. And so to that point, you know, it, it may well be that, you know, it almost certainly will be that for the near and medium term future, you get the best sort of performance out of a hybrid of a person and a machine, right? And so you have people and machines working together, you know, people contributing common sense and good judgments and machines contributing consistency and a lack of bias, um, you know, but we'll see how it plays out. Without necessarily saying whether a person or a machine is a better or worse choice for a particular task, I think really the answer to that is not essentially a bias between one or the other, but there is an objective answer to that. You know, which works better and we should use that option and we should have laws that don't artificially discriminate between which one is doing it. And, um, you know, indeed, I think it's going to be a lot easier in areas where you do have clear answers to things than in areas, you know, you know, the, the last thing to be automated will be, you know, probably among other, uh, one of the last things to be automated will be human judging, you know, but I think in large part too, just because it is so very subjective, um, you know, how judges behave and, and our ability not to cede autonomy on things like that. It's, it's going to be very interesting, at least in this field, in the, in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, just the advances that we may or may not see, right? There's always going to be those, those crazy things that happen as well, but it's a very interesting field. But I'm really happy that you wrote this book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And uh, I'm really happy to have you come on again. Well, no, I appreciate you getting in all the time words. I'm going to have to do something exciting for season three of your podcast. Yeah, exactly, right? You know, yeah. training with you or something. Exactly. Hopefully by then I'll be doing something exciting too. Already doing several exciting things. Right, trying my best, but um, I know you have to go, so we'll wrap up here. And um, just in conclusion, obviously, you and I have been talking a little bit about your book launch, but as far as um, I'll put a link up to, I think it was I bought it off Amazon, but I'll throw a couple of links up for the book uh, so people can get it themselves. But uh, as far as press is going and and 
events. Uh, what do you got going on the next kind of six months to a year as far as this book goes? Oh, um, well, we're still trying to do the book symposium. We're debating doing it in person or, or, or um, just doing it virtually. And, and there's a number of book talks that I'm doing. I made a little website called thereasonablerobot.com or on ryanab.com. If, if someone wants to watch me give talks on the books, if someone hasn't had enough of me talking about the book <laughs> after, our, after our podcast here, you can find links to it there. And um, I'm glad you'll be coming to the book launch, pandemic gods permitting. And yeah. uh, you know, otherwise, at some point up, we'll come a link to an audio book. If you want to read the book and then listen to the book on your morning jog, uh, you're going to get a lot of book. No, it's awesome. Thanks again for, for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. This is number two. We had the technical difficulties the first time around. I felt terrible, but uh, I'm glad it worked out. I, I think everything worked well, at least on my end it did. So hopefully when I play this back, everything's fine. And uh, But anyway, thank you very much for, for popping in. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. My pleasure. All right, we'll do it again soon.